Today I'm reading from 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. First Samuel 15, verses 1 through 9. Listen as I read God's word. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt, Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek, Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed." The subject of hell and of God's just judgment is a rightfully sobering subject. It is one that is uh, is in its own right a terrifying doc- doctrine, and one that the message of the Amalekites highlights. The just judgment of God comes against a wicked nation. This passage in its historical setting uh, has in mind focusing on Saul and his response to God's commands. You can already begin to see his, uh, his disobedience, how he does not do as God commands. And later Samuel will pronounce God's judgment on Saul. His conclusion of the matter is that to, be, to obey is better than sacrifice that the kingdom is ripped from Saul. But before we go on to to look at that historical setting, we really do need to understand this judgment of God that is pronounced against Amalek. It is a a subject that, uh, quite honestly, is jarring to our ears. It is a subject that have caused many to scratch their heads and to even recoil from what they see as being a harsh or angry nature of God. There are some that would even characterize in the Old Testament that God was a God of wrath, but 
But my God is not like that. And they even sit in judgment on the character of God, the holiness of God, the sinfulness of mankind, and turn away from biblical Christianity itself. Because of that, it's important to understand this command that comes, a command to utterly destroy Amalek. It stands today as a symbol of the wrath to come, and because of that, my message is that lesson of Amalek, to flee the wrath to come by exercising faith in the one who forgives. We'll begin with the command that God gives to Saul. God commanded Saul to utterly destroy Amalek. And in that command, there are three important truths that will help you to understand this passage, will help you to understand God's character, and help you to understand that that urging that comes, that warning to flee the wrath to come. The first important fact to understand is is that God commanded it. This action has been been called a holy war. Another word that's used is the word ban, B-A-N. It's a ban that there is a devoting of the nation of, of Amalek, its people and its possessions in their entirety, devoting them to the Lord for his judgment and for his destruction carried out at the hands of Saul and of the Israelites. And it was a command of God. This wasn't Saul's battle plan. This wasn't Samuel's. It came from God himself. And I say that because it's going to lead us to ask and answer the questions, why would God do this? And I'll come to that in just a moment. But it also helps set the stage of understanding and submitting to the authority of God in all things. It is a command of God. And as believers in God, as ones who are submitting to his authority, we have to come to terms with what the Bible says. The text says God commanded this. We can't explain it away as being cultural or just being an Old Testament God who has changed now. No, God commands this. It will also help us to understand that there is a unique and specific time and place where this is commanded. You cannot use this passage to declare a holy war on other nations today. We have commands of God that instruct us about how to, how to conduct ourselves in the nations around us. We are commanded to go with a sword, the sword of the Spirit, which is the gospel, for the converting of the nations. And we're shown in the book of Revelation that Christ himself rides forth from heaven declaring that gospel with the sword coming out of his mouth for the conversion of the nations. But that's very different from this very physical judgment of God 
which he commands to bring judgment on the nation of Amalek. Which leads us to the second fact that God commanded this ban, this holy war, for a reason. The reasons will ultimately drive us to consider the nature of God and that holiness of God is, uh, is the nature that comes through and is revealed by this command. God is holy and we are not. And that, uh, that, that doctrine, once you, once you understand that God is holy, 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 as he is revealed from heaven itself by the angels who worship him, when you realize that he is utterly holy, that is completely free from sin, it sheds light and helps you to understand the gravity of our sin against a holy God. And it begins to shed light and it begins to help you to understand how God justly judges all unrighteousness. That it is right for him to do that. He is holy and we are not. And that sheds light on all of the declarations throughout all of the scripture, not just the Old Testament, of the wrath of God that falls against all wickedness. It helps you to understand the doctrine of hell as well. For it is an eternal judgment of God against the wickedness of mankind. That ultimate reason then will help you to understand the, uh, the more proximate reason here or the more immediate reason. God declared judgment on the nations of Canaan and on Amalek specifically. So let's look at Canaan and then we'll come to Amalek in a moment. Here we need to go back to recognize that there is, a, uh, there is a, a sin of the nations who were the inhabitants of Canaan. And this goes back all the way to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the ones that God called out of their land to come and to possess this land of inheritance, a promised land, a land that was, though, inhabited by the Canaanites and uh, the variety of nations that lived there. Those inhabitants had rebelled against the Lord and had done so for a long time, for hundreds of years, longer than the United States had even been in existence. And God had consistently shown mercy and patience with them. He gave generation after generation time to hear of his law and his promise of of redemption. He gave them time to repent. He even set the patriarchs in their midst. And I want you to recognize that there was a gracious reason for that. Their witness was a light to a rebellious people. They were ones who lived publicly under the covenant of God. They, They publicly worshiped God. They called upon the name of the Lord, and and people knew that. That was the worship of God, which was a witness to the nations around them. But they consistently rejected that message that God brought through 
through the, the word, the worship, the people of God, the covenants that were made. And this comes through as well when Jacob left the promised land to flee the famine. He went to Egypt. And it says that there was a reason for that, was for his preservation. But it was also because the wickedness of the land of Canaan was not yet full. There was, again, a patience of God until the time was right for him to bring judgment. And he did that after 400 years of the children of Israel in Egypt. He brought them out. He delivered them. There's a purpose in that. But he brought them back to Canaan to exercise that judgment. Which brings us to Amalek. Because Amalek had a a specific sin in this context. When Israel came up out of Egypt, when they were on their way to Mount Sinai to worship God, Amalek attacked. It's very tempting to to approach this, uh, as it's sometimes called, the conquest of Canaan, as if the nations of Canaan were innocents and the Israelites were the aggressors. That's sometimes the way it's described. But Amalek attacked Israel as they were on their way. Verse 2 in our text describes it this way. Amalek ambushed Israel on the way when he came up out of Egypt. And if you go back and read about it, Moses describes it in Deuteronomy 25. He fills in details, and their attack is, is a particularly cruel attack. Through Moses, God helps them to remember how Amalek dealt with them. He says that Amalek attacked the stragglers. That's the words that's used in Deuteronomy. Well, uh, who are the stragglers? Just think about it. They are the most vulnerable individuals. They're the ones who would struggle to keep up with the nation as they traveled along. They would fall behind because they were old, because they were infirmed, because they were children, because they were were parents with, with little toddlers. And these are the ones the Amalekites attacked. This was no honorable warfare. Uh, they were like animals that uh, pick off the weak and the young. You may remember the battle because Israel does turn to fight against Amalek. And this is the battle that uh, when Moses lifted up his hands to pray for the Lord to, uh, to protect them from this enemy that was attacking them, while his hands were raised, the army was successful. But as the day went on and the battle wore on and his arms grew weary, his arms fell then Amalek was successful on the battlefield. So Aaron and Hur came and they lift up his arms and God does deliver them that day from an enemy who attacked them. They were not innocent. God through, uh, God through uh, Moses said this, Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around, in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. 
that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. That's what is happening now in 1 Samuel 15. Through Samuel, God is remembering this offense. And once again, there has been patience up to this point. But now the Lord is declaring judgment on Amalek. He is using Saul and Israel to exercise and execute that judgment. And those facts you need to understand so that uh, you'll come to, uh, to recognize the principles that come out of this. That God commanded, that he had specific reasons that deal, deal with his character of holiness and that Amalek had specific sins. It leads to two principles that grow out of this judgment that the Lord declares. The first is that, that the Lord did this to preserve, to protect, to deliver his, his chosen people, Israel. And that deliverance then stands as a promise for all time that the Lord will save those who flee to him in faith in Jesus Christ. Let me lead you through that. God has covenant, had covenanted with Israel to bring them into Canaan, the promised land. Yes, there were nations that were living there, nations who had rejected God, who had 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 persecuted and acted against the, uh, the patriarchs who had plugged their ears to the covenant of God. They were not innocents. And as God had promised that, he is bringing Israel now to fulfill that promise. And that land had a significant role in the people's minds. And the New Testament helps us to understand this. Abraham, as he is brought into the promised land and, and actually never really possessed it. He owned, he owned a cemetery, a place to bury his dead, but he never really possessed that land. But that was okay because what he possessed was what the land represented. Hebrews says that he waited for the city which foundation, has foundations whose builder and maker is God. In other words, it wasn't the land that Abraham wanted to possess. He wanted to possess the promises of God. He wanted, he wanted God himself. And that's what he received by the promise of God, by the, by the covenant. So in that Old Testament period, when God was helping the church in its infancy to look forward to the coming of the Redeemer, there are, are many things that were given to help them to understand that. And we've talked about sacrifices and priesthood and things like that. But the land itself was part of that, and the judgment of God was, was part of it. There was a spiritual inheritance that would come through Jesus Christ. And so, in this specific instance, God act to preserve Israel. They were the ones through whom Jesus would come. They were his covenant people. Salvation was prefigured by these physical deliverances. 
There was also some preservation from the perverting influence of the nations around. The nations worshipped other gods. They sacrificed their children to other gods. And just their influence around them often permeated in and influenced and led the children of Israel astray. So the Lord was preserving and protecting his own people. And that Old Testament preservation does stand as a sign. It's a sense, uh, the gospel in Old Testament language, that the Lord will deliver all those who are believing in the one who forgives. But secondly, this is probably the most obvious, is the principle that God acted to execute judgment on the wicked. And that too stands as a symbol for all time. In this case, it stands as a warning for all time, a warning to all who reject Jesus, that he will bring judgment on all mankind who reject him. And this is the point that is most obvious, but is the one that that seems to be missed the the most or reacted against. It is that character of God that I, the point I made earlier, that, that informs this principle. That God will indeed judge the wicked. And that's not just scripture that comes from the Old Testament. It is something that runs throughout all of the Bible. Right from the very beginning. Think of what God said to Adam and Eve as he placed them in the Garden of Eden. You shall not eat of the tree of the Garden of Eden. What was the warning? Do not eat, for in the day that you eat, you will surely die. There's that judgment of God and the judgment of death that is proclaimed because of it. And the witness of scripture and the witness of Christ himself is that the judgment of God is revealed every day against wickedness and will be revealed in eternity for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. Jesus spoke of it as the second death find that in the Gospels and then repeated by John, the Revelation 20. The second death, which is the eternal judgment of God against all unrighteousness. As I said, it is a a terrifying uh, uh, doctrine in that uh, the everlasting wrath of God is poured out forever on all those who reject Jesus. But it is right And it is just that that would happen. Without it, God would cease to be holy. He would be accepting of sin. And in all honesty, he would cease to be God himself. And that's even more terrifying than the the doctrine of hell. Because it leaves us without any hope of justification, without any hope of meaning or righteousness. 
it leaves us with just bad things that happen without any understanding. And so Amalek stands as a sign of that judgment of God. Remember that they are not innocent. They are described by, uh, by Samuel, by Moses, by the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy and the Psalms and here as rebelling against God, as conspiring against God, as covenanting against his people to destroy them. I say that because the tendency is to, uh, uh, to, to push, push back against this doctrine and, and to think, well, What's up with God utterly destroying Amalek? Men, women, children, livestock. What's up with that? Who would ever do that? And as that notion, uh, kind of uh, the seeds of it start to grow and they bear a fruit, you begin to think that God would act unjustly against innocence. But they are not innocent. And and neither are we. Which lead very directly to the applications that flow from this passage. I want to quickly, in the first application, remind you of the limitations that come on this Old Testament command to utterly destroy Amalek. It was the direct call of God for a unique situation. It doesn't give warrant for a continued holy war. In fact, in the text you see that the Kenites are delivered. Uh, God was, was very narrowly directing this. I, I said that before. Let me go on then to the second application. This stands as a warning, and I want to apply it to you personally and then to the work of evangelism. So what is the warning that's applied to to you yourself? It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. He is a consuming fire. And the application is to flee that wrath to come, to flee it by exercising faith in the one who forgives. Gordon Ketty has said that God's enemies will perish. Any sense of revulsion against God for his dealings with the Amalekites bespeaks a lack of willingness to face the fact of God's perfect holiness, the fact of the sinfulness of our sin, the fact of the the justice of God that comes because all have sinned and the wages of sin is death. And the fact that I myself am a sinner fully deserving that condemnation. And if you think that this utter destruction of of the Amalekites is uh, is cringeworthy, then you will also deny the doctrine of hell. 
because in reality, the destruction of the Amalekites pales in comparison to the justice of God in eternity upon all those who reject Jesus Christ. Jesus himself spoke more about hell than any author in the Bible. The doctrine of hell is a command of God. It is the just judgment of a holy God against sin. And that is why we must preach the gospel to ourselves to begin with. And the first application is that if you have rejected Christ, if you have not turned away from your sins, then that that judgment hangs over your head. And it is the just judgment of God. And yet God is merciful. He sends the light of the gospel. In fact, he sent his own son to take that punishment so that the justice of God would be fully fulfilled. And in Jesus Christ, you can flee that wrath to come, which leads to another aspect of that applying of this warning to yourself, because because as a believer in Jesus Christ, you can rejoice that the wrath of God has been fulfilled on your account. That's why Jesus came. That's what the cross is all about. And in Jesus Christ, you can rejoice that you have salvation. And just think of these precious words that we use to describe our faith. They have to have the bad news to understand the good news, right? Salvation implies that you're saved from something. You're saved from hell. You're saved from the wrath to come. Redemption means that you're bought back. Instead of being doomed and destined to be tossed onto the rubbish heap of eternity and to suffer the the fire of God forever, God redeems you from that. He has purchased you by the blood of Jesus Christ. And in him you can rejoice that you have salvation, the forgiveness of sins. Which leads to the last application that the warning can be applied to evangelism as well. God is not mocked. The guilty will not go unpunished. And it is right and it is loving to take the message of the bad news of the wrath of God to the world, to warn them of that, along with the good news that there is salvation, there is deliverance, that they may flee the wrath to come by exercising faith in the one who forgives. And God is merciful. He is patient and long-suffering so that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he is at work even now sending out his gospel, sending out his church with that message so that there would be men women and children from every race and language and tribe and tongue who come to faith in Jesus Christ. And in Revelation 21, you have a, 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 the vision of John proclaiming that judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ that did 
pronounce judgment on those who reject Jesus Christ, but also pronounce the glorious eternity that is, is in store for all of those, for all of you who have faith in Jesus Christ. There will be no more sin. There will be no more death. There will be no more pain or tears. For Jesus Christ has fulfilled all righteousness and all justice on your account. And in him you have redemption, the forgiveness of your sins. May you have grace to grasp those personally. And by faith, remind yourself of the forgiveness that you have, that the wrath does not fall on you, but has fallen fully on Jesus. And may the Lord give you strength to share that good news as ones who have been set free out of love and out of desire for others to hear that. Tell them that they too may flee the wrath to come by faith in the one who forgives. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you that the wrath that we have deserved has indeed fallen on our Savior, Jesus Christ. May you bless us richly with the truth of that today, both as we have heard that gospel proclaimed, the good news of our salvation, But let us hear it as well, O Lord, in the sacrament that we celebrate. For the judgment that we have deserved has indeed fallen upon Jesus Christ. His body was broken, his blood poured out, so that we might have life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn and sing Psalm 83. In this psalm, the judgment of God is proclaimed. It's right that we would praise the Lord who is holy. It's right for us to acknowledge that his judgment is just. And in this psalm, it is declared on some specific nations, and Amalek is named. And they stand, and all of these nations stand, as a warning of the wrath to come. And it's right for us to praise God, and to pray for that judgment to fall. And at the same time, to rejoice that the judgment that we deserve has been paid in Jesus Christ. Let's sing Psalm 83, rejoicing that we have forgiveness. Please stand to sing. 